Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Okay, uh, welcome to Oh Captain, my captain. Uh, my name is Mark Holbrook. I am recording this from a housing estate somewhere in Surrey uh, because I couldn't get a late checkout in my hotel room. And I'm joined by Ricky Masindo, who is actually where he always is. Hi, Ricky. Hi, Mark. How's it going? It's good to see the blurry <laughs> image of you walking through a very sunny day, as always, I guess. I'm trying. I'm trying to find somewhere where I can sort of sit where I can kind of talk to you in peace and quiet without people. <laughs> I'm, I'm currently walking over a train bridge, but there's <laughs> someone doing work on his house. Basically, um, I couldn't get a late checkout of my hotel today. <laughs> so I'm sort of wandering the streets like some sort of podcast vagabond. <laughs> Um, and it's all been absolute chaos today, and I don't know if the chaos is going to continue because um, we had certain guests lined up. Those guests, for understandable reasons, because we are uh, recording this in uh, the year of our Lord, I mean Marcus Rashford, uh, <laughs> the year of our Lord, 2021. And uh, so we are still in COVID times when... People are being pinged and people are being ill and all that sort of stuff. So our normal guests, we couldn't have. So I've managed to get a guest for today who's going to do the any questions answered. Are you okay with that, Ricky Machindo? Are you happy to live on the hoof, as it were, with the uh, the confusing... Uh, concept of a brand new guest today oh i'm very ready it just takes us to the next level where i don't know what's going on and i'm just here being like hi i'm ricky i'm the fresh face in the world of stand-up not really knowing what's happening it really takes that to the next level that is very true and do you know what i'm gonna do which I, which i've never done because it is a bit weird um as a teetotaler to do this um <laughs> i'm sat outside a pub so uh, oh. I am going to get myself a lovely lemonade and uh, you'll record me. Uh, <laughs> I'm ordering my drink. So stay there. <laughs> oh, God. Um, to everyone listening, right now I can see just a menu of all the things that are available. Apparently the pub that Mark is at. Has a 10% discount. Hiya, is it possible to get a pint of cranberry juice and lemonade? <laughs> His headphones are still connected, so now you'll be able to hear the whole conversation. Oh, yes. Perfect. Um, a bit of ice. Actually, can I have two of them? Because it's hot, in it? Yeah, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> if you ever want to send nice. Mark a drink, you know yes, the one now. I hope Russell comes in right now while I'm ordering a drink. <laughs> he might do. You never know. That'd be so funny. He'll, he'll know exactly what this is. Um, can I get some mini cheddars as well, please? Yeah, it's the regular ones. Um, what are the ones in the middle with the white pack? Uh, they are red, red, 
Oh. Uh, Plowman's Cheshire cheese. I'm going to go for what, a packet of Plowman's Cheddar cheese mini cheddars. Have you ever had a Plowman's uh... <laughs> cheddar cheese? Right. Okay. Let's see what we can do. Is this up there with the weirdest podcast intros we've done? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I would say the one with Jimmy. John Richardson being chased by dogs. Yeah, the one where you were going to shit yourself as well. That was, that, was definitely <laughs> that was definitely up there. But we've had some weird ones. We have had some weird ones. So, um, so our guest today is Russell Howard. And this is what's happened. So everything's gone a bit pear-shaped in the last hour. I was told I was allowed a uh, late checkout, which didn't happen. Um, then, because they were fully booked, so I was shoved out in the street. Then the guests uh, left uh, and cancelled on me. So I managed to get Russell to do it. And we're going to do what we did with John Richardson at the end of last series. We're going to do any questions asked. I put a, a thing to uh, all of my uh, sort of, I've got a little comedy group on Facebook. Um and so I've got loads of questions. So I've got loads of questions for Russell. Um, and so all we have to do is sort of hope he turns up because I've yeah. sent him the link. Uh, let us talk. Let us do the proper preamble because... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's just not been... the proper preamble. <laughs> well, I don't really know if this is the proper preamble, but I because it's all been about me and this strange day. Tell me about uh, Ricky Masindo. Have you, have you gigged since I last spoke to you? Have yep. you done anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I did uh, Smoke and Mirrors on Monday. I did 10 minutes there. And then I uh, was visiting a friend in London over the weekend. So I did an open mic in London on Sunday. So that was very weird. That was very, very weird. Can you talk to me about the sort of the difference in those two gigs? Because yeah, obviously we have people listen... I'm guessing lots of our listeners come from Bristol, but we've talked about the fact we have people from all over the world. And yeah. uh, um, But I'm guessing we have people who, who listen in London as well. Can you talk to me about the difference between a Bristol open mic night, which is sort of what the Smoke and Mirrors is. Yeah. If the Smoke and Mirrors was in London, that's the type of gig it would be. So yeah. the difference between a Bristol open mic night and a London open mic night. Yeah, yeah. So it is absolute night and day. So it's like, okay, so I started in London. So that was my idea of what stand up was. And then I came to Bristol. And then that's where I've done most of my stand up now. And it's like, they're kind of pros and cons to both. In Bristol, there's not really many sh like open mic nights where you don't necessarily get a proper audience. Because like, yeah, like like Alex Kitson's this next act, like Mr. Wolf's kind of uh, smoke and mirrors, like even the gong show for smoke and mirrors. You're pretty much guaranteed most of the time to get a reasonably full room, if not sold out. And um, so that means that the open mic nights tend to be a proper a proper show. Like you have an MC, you have loads of acts, you might have a headliner who's reasonably established. So it'll be like a full range of the spectrum of comedy. Um, and but that has pros and cons, but like the good thing about that is it means, you know, you have a full, actual proper show, you know, you're not, you don't feel like you're coming to do like essentially speak to three people or whatever. And yeah. I would say that although we're quite lucky in Bristol with some of these gigs, I think that does exist in 
Manchester yeah. it exists in Edinburgh with Red Raw. I think it does exist in place. And we spoke to Neil Delamere and that exists in Dublin as well. That concept of a new app night that also has other apps popping in with a proper audience is something that does exist, not just in Bristol, all across the country. So yeah. that model you say, pretty much the same everywhere. Yeah. The London version? <laughs> yeah. See, the London version, I guess because you're constantly competing against everything else happening in London on that day, it means that getting any audience whatsoever is an achievement, pretty much, pretty much, to most of the open mics. I've been to probably, I don't know, somewhere between five to ten open mics in London. And sometimes you'll get an audience, sometimes you won't. But a lot of the time, you can guarantee that a large chunk of the audience is going to be the other comedians at the back of the room, kind of anxiously jittering, waiting for their time to go on stage. So it's like it's the so it's like a lot of the time um, you're not it's you don't really get to test what you're doing. You don't really get to test your material because you don't have like a full room of people because because it's, it's like because of like what we were talking with like um, Angela when we were saying about how a room just how it's structured can affect a night so much. If you have an empty front row and then a full middle row and then an empty two back rows behind that, the lights are on and the comedians are all at the back waiting in silence. That room is not conducive to having an, a raucous night of laughter. So it's like, that's, it's, yeah, it's essentially, I think it's more people are, it, there's more of a, uh, not even in a bad way, but a comp competition for spots in London because of just the nature of uh, London comedy. But in Bristol, I guess, because there's fewer of us, there's less stand-up going on, it means that we can essentially get more packed rooms and more gig opportunities because there's fewer comedians to essentially share all those gigs. So, yeah, there is a big... How, a big... how was it? How was the gig? Oh, it was it was good. Like it was it was fine. It was nice. It was a nice room. Um, yeah, it it like <laughs> it was kind of the same thing with um that other gig that I did at Stags and Hounds, where because of the nature of the room, I just didn't do that much material. I just did crowd work, spoke to people, saw what was going on, did a bit of like written stuff, but it just it just doesn't it just it just doesn't work to recite jokes in a room like that when there's literally five people who are the audience and you can have a conversation with all of them it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it uh, flows nicely so i just did that pretty much as a way of practicing crowd work because i'm doing um, you um you could answer this question in any way you want to uh, i'm a big fan of transparency and honesty on this podcast um, but I'm going to ask you um, a slightly rude question now. And go. so you can choose uh, how to answer. Um, what was the quality of the other acts like? Okay, so there was like kind of a spectrum. So I think a lot of the people who were there were literally brand new, like straight out of um, lockdown. They started doing comedy or they started during lockdown with like Zoom gigs and stuff like that. But there were some like solid acts, like some good acts, like ones that were definitely better than me. Like the headliner was a guy called, um, I think, Eddie Malaki. 
uh, some of that. He's Irish um, and he came to London to do a couple of gigs and then he came to do that open mic just, you know, just because might as well, I guess. Um, and there were a couple of people who were like uh, good. Oh, we've got Russ Howard. All right, bud. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, not too bad. Um, so, uh, for, oh, Captain, my captain today for the um, all questions answered is uh, we had loads of people cancel and I'm thinking to myself, who do I know who uh, is in isolation at the moment and is bored? And uh, so I got uh, Russell Howard. That's right, isn't it, Ricky? Yeah, that's more than all right. <laughs> and no complaints from me whatsoever. Um, and I don't think you two will have spoken or met since Lakota days, right? Yeah, it's been a very long time. It's been a very long time. How have you been, Russell? Very well indeed. Well, the last time we saw each other, you just done what was then your biggest gig. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, supporting me at Lakota, which was like an outside car park gig. Yeah. But it went so well for you that they gave you a free table to that <laughs> night. <laughs> Whenever you want. And we had a moment in the uh, dressing room. Do you remember afterwards? Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. I was sort of saying, I've never had that happen. <laughs> like, it was incredible. There was something really sweet about the fact that you did so well. And the venue, it, it was like they were looking after like a local lad. It was really yeah. sweet. Did you go back there? Yeah, I did. So I went back uh, to do, I went back all like loads for the like, DJ sets because there's nothing to do in lockdown. Yeah. And I also like um I supported Deliso Japonda. Oh, once. yeah, man. Yeah. So I and I did a lot and I did another student night where they just got a bunch of student comics in to do uh, like for ten minutes. So I've done a couple there since that one. So yeah, it's just been say. yeah, it's just been rolling and rolling. But um I don't know if Lakota's oh. still doing stand up now. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> They were for a bit, but I would say it was the best. It was the best lockdown gig that I did. I thought it was amazing. They honestly, that that venue got their act together so much quicker than anyone else, and it just turned it into. It was those gigs were brilliant, weren't they, Mark? Every time we did them, they just had such an amazing energy. There was something about them because there's something about lockdown gigs where, cause, so basically, a lot of the gigs that have been happening in the last when we've been allowed to have gigs. Uh, have been set up a bit weirdly because they have to be and mm -hmm. sometimes and actually Russ before you came on we were talking uh, I was talking to Ricky about doing gigs in London because he did an open spot in London last week and Ricky said it was fine he said but they had like five people where there was no one in the front row and all the five people in a row and then there were two rows empty and then all the comedians at the back and that is a nightmare mm -hmm. but if you bring all of those people together and sit those 12 people in three rows of four or just two rows of six, right, you can turn what is an uncomfortable gig into an uncomfortable but quite sweet gig. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. But you can polish a turd in terms of <laughs> gigs. And what, what the Lakota did was basically they made the very, very best of a difficult situation. Yeah, they essentially, they covered, not only did they uh, cover a turd in glitter, but they made a glitter ball out of that turd. They, <laughs> they literally had a glitter ball in a fucking car park. It was incredible. Um, 
Yeah, but it's weird. It's always that thing, I think, slightly as well with when you go from doing gigs in the West Country, they're always relatively well set up. And then you go and do like yeah. an open spot gig in London. This is this was always my memory. And then you're like, there's four people there or something like that. And you just go, oh, I'm quite good. But, but convincing four people is, yeah. is quite another thing. Do you know what I mean? And then that's when you sort of meet, meet that traditional, I don't know if it's the same now, but it always used to be like people in London had power five minutes and people outside had kind of, sort of rambling 20s that was kind of the way and then it was always that thing of like all right how do you sort of whittle it down to five minutes you know yeah do you think that's fascinating that you were doing that 19 years ago and it's still it's still not changed it's like the description you just made i saw ricky's face and he was like shit that's exactly the same nearly 20 years later like why has it not changed in all of that time i think just because like I can only speak of like our experience, but we had our own little audience. We had this kind of probably about 50 people that would kind of come to these gigs that Olver used to put on and 50 stretching it. Let's not muck around 20. And they were yeah. sort of like, like jugglers and kind of, they worked in cafes and they were kind of like musicians. And, but basically because they saw us so often, we always had to have new material for them. Whereas in London, mm-hmm you just don't so it, it's such a sort of you know migratory crowd that you it's all about getting that perfect tight set and it's a bit more like uh, new york in that sense do you know what i mean that you because there's a lot to be said for kind of developing that kind of set but i think early on it's a lot better to ju- to be able to be loose and free and figure yourself out do you know what i mean it's sort of that weird thing of like, I know that happens in the States a lot that, you know, really great comics are kind of, you know, might sort of be born and start in like Atlanta or like Boston or wherever. And then they kind of make their way to New York and then they make their way to LA once they've kind of figured out what they're doing. It's almost like London can wait sometimes. New York, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Before it's so much better to kind of, not even make your mistakes, but just kind of figure it out. And well, that's what we did in Bristol, wasn't it, Mark? We just kind of, you know, we kind of went through, like Ross Noble was like this amazing influence on all my generation. And so was Daniel Kitson. So we would kind of like try and like mimic them and ad lib and riff and, you know, and because we had the whole night, we could do that. And then obviously you go and do a gig, you know, at the amused moose or something like that you've got to do five minutes and you suddenly realize oh shit i haven't got five but i am getting better at being a comedian but it's going to take me a while because i'm doing it backwards mm. do you know what i mean um but yeah um i have got loads of questions and i basically just put this out and i don't know i've not gone through them and ricky you've not seen the questions either have you no, I haven't. No, I haven't. You haven't said so. That. I basically so what I did, Russ. I didn't want people to know it was you because I didn't want people to go. You know, so uh, how do you get the tips of your hair to look so blonde? You know, I didn't want <laughs> that stuff. Um, I wanted uh, so the very first question that came in, um, and this is from Morgan Reese. You want an answer for the for the question you just posed to me? <laughs> you can't. I mean, you can if you want, but I've got a lovely uh, hairdresser called Nat. <laughs> Uh, she's, she's she's a French lady, and uh, to uh, to use her parlance, let's brighten you up. That's what she said. 
as bright as you are. So you need to um, find a, you need to find a French woman called Natalie, and she'll brighten you up. Uh, Ricky, would you ever go uh, blonde tips on your hair? Oh yeah, I mean, if, if I've learned anything is that with black hair you can pull off almost anything. <laughs> but it's difficult to put off, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd have to go like an afro and get like frosted tips. It would be a whole like endeavor. Uh, we've had this conversation in the past, Russ, about uh, on this podcast with Ricky uh, about um, black uh, skin care, about <laughs> black hair care. Um, <laughs> Ricky, uh, just go on the record of saying I already feel so out of my depth here. <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of I, d- I don't know, but yeah, go on, carry on. <laughs> Well, no, this is this is quite this is good for me because basically, uh, what, what what phrase did you use the other day, Ricky? I am getting used to Mark Olver's whiteness. That's yeah, what yeah, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting used to your whiteness. Yeah, having to explain the dryness of black skin to you. <laughs> but do you like? Do your white friends feel comfortable asking you those questions? Like, and do you feel comfortable answering those questions? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, like my my white friends don't really give a fuck. Like at this point, like, <laughs> I think they've become so woke and open minded that they've come full circle, and now they're willing to ask all the uncomfortable questions. What so? What questions they asking you about your skin? <laughs> just just stuff like, for example, when I wear shorts, I have to moisturize my legs because otherwise yeah. it gets ashy. Like black skin gets quite ashy. Mm. And I have like a very regimented skincare routine where right. I use like CeraVe, which is like this face wash and um, this toner, which I got from Boots and nice. also some <laughs> moisturizer because, you know, it really makes it glow. And like what I said on the last podcast, black, people say black don't crack, but black don't crack for a reason. And that's because we look after it. Right. Yeah. See, because I, I know about the concept of, uh, of of ashy skin from a Bill Burr routine. Yeah. And um, Ashy Larry, of course, from uh, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what Neil Delamere said as well. He's seen yeah. the Bill Burr routine as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, you sort of learn these tidbits, but I still don't think I would go up to my friend at university and go, what's your skincare ratio? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Maybe the world's changed. But then that being said, if I saw you sort of like sort of slopping it on, I'd probably, and you were doing it in the front room. Yeah. yeah. Like, what the fuck yeah. you doing? Yeah. yeah. It was when I did the, when I went downstairs with the charcoal face mask, that was when questions were asked. <laughs> I'd say, well, mate, I used to live, um, a very good friend of mine, uh, my friend Paul, he had eczema and he used to creep into my room when I was at university to play on a uh, championship manager, which was a, uh, the precursor to football manager and we had it on my computer and I'd hear him scratching away. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was the only time that I'd sort of discussed skincare at university. And I was like, you should really sort that out. And he was like, yeah, I mean, Russell is, Russell is saying this about his friend Paul at university, but uh, Russell is convenient, conveniently forgetting that, he's, that for a long time, he had the worst fucking feet in the history of comedy. Yeah. Um, so much of our time spent together was Russell playing with his rancid feet when we were. Uh... <laughs> How are well, they I'm now, still, by the way? Well, my feet are fine. It's just you know, just uh, the, the the wider problem is just my living in fucking filth. I can't <laughs> just look like it's just. This is just my sort of front room there. 
like um yeah i can't not do it man i bought a trampoline yesterday because apparently that's meant to be really good for you to bounce so yeah how's your pandemic chaps (laughs) (laughs) um, literally the second question that was sent in was um when do you do your hoovering genuinely someone came in (laughs) i said we got a famous comedian i'm not going to say who it is um and the second question is when do you do your hoovering so i think we've answered that question yeah well um yeah exactly uh morgan reese uh sent in so he was the very first person and he Mm -hmm. sent in um who books your tour support and then he put a gif straight after that of a woman screaming going why am i like this why am i like this <laughs> um who books my tour? Uh, so avalon uh sort it all out yeah so um and i've i've always kind of done it with uh steve williams and steve hall they've uh, traditionally always supported me but yeah avalon sort it out and then when i do like warm-up um i kind of if i see somebody that i think is good i'll kind of get them on and um yeah, that kind of thing, really. But annoying. Did you do during the, the, the tour support thing, Tom? I was going to say during the pandemic, I'm just doing them on my own because you're doing two shows a night. So yeah. that's kind of what we did when I was in Australia as well because it, it just limited the the problems if somebody had to isolate. It just meant there was only two of us, just me and the tour manager. Uh, so, yeah, so I'd do like an hour and a half and then have like an hour break and then do the second show. Um but yeah, normally it's uh, Steve Williams and Steve Hall, and it's all booked through Avalon. Um, and also this guy as well. Um, because you do like to pick people that you get on with, right? Because you... Yeah, well, that's the, that's the main thing, isn't it? It's just it's kind of people that you're going to hang out with. So like Steve and Steve are people I've known for years, and uh, they write on uh, my TV show. Um, and they're just a good hang. So it's just, you know, it's just nice to hang out. So I've got this lovely group of my tour manager, the wonderful, the mighty Kumar Kamalakaram. Um, um, and then, yeah, Steve and Steve or Steve. That's kind of it, really. And it's just quite a nice little hang. Um, yeah. Um, the next question was, this is an interesting one, actually. So I don't even think this is a question for you, but I want to ask you it. When I said I've got a famous person, I wasn't going to tell them who it was. This person said, how famous? And then it was, and then it was mega. Like, do you, would you, would you describe yourself as mega famous? No, no, I'm a famous comedian. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a celebrity. I've tried so hard to make that happen and I've been very successful with it. But yeah, I think that's the thing. I thought there was definitely opportunities earlier on where I could have gone into that world, but you know fuck that so uh yeah i don't really do the old uh you know red carpets i don't really sell products to people on instagram or anything like that <laughs> uh, ricky what would you be uh what would you be like as a famous person ricky as a famous person oh I would, would you be an absolute monster i i'd be an awful famous person i in more respect what would you do i think i i i would be awful in the sense that like I think it would be really hard for me if people were always asking me. This is actually this is actually awful because I asked you for a photo once <laughs> for my mum. But if, but if the tables were turned and someone did that to me, I'd just be like, okay, I understand you're my fan. But I would really struggle with having to not really? be able to be low key. Yeah, yeah, because I really like having like a low profile. No one knows I'm there. I just kind of like show up when I want, but people recognizing me i think that would be so weird 
But then again, it's never happened. Maybe I'd love it. Yeah, but then also, what's it's funny you you figure out how to sort of like manage it. That's the thing I've often found strange about somebody like the the, the like it, gigging abroad is amazing mm. because you're suddenly like an open spot again, and you have to convince people that you're kind of funny rather than them going, "Hey, it's the bloke off the telly." So yeah, I, I kind of really. I don't know. I like it. And also, if somebody asks you for a photo, particularly in this country, it takes a lot of balls to mm. pluck up the courage to, to to say, like, when you wanted a photo of me, mm. you probably wanted to do it straight away, but yet you sort of had to build up for half an hour or whatever. Yeah. So imagine how bad it would have been if I went, nah. It, yeah. it just feels like you're just putting out this pointless karma into the world. It's like, nah, it doesn't bother me. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a little thing as well, and it brightens up someone's day so much. Yeah, well, that's it. But it, it's, yeah, it's, what's, what is strange, though, when you meet mega famous people and um, you, we're all the same, aren't we? Everyone, I remember I met uh, Perlo, the uh, Italian footballer in New York, and he was in a, um, he was in a cafe. And I, and I sort of, and I've had this happen to me so many times where people have, like, pointed at me and shouted my name and gone, Jesus, it's such a weird reaction. And yet, sure enough, I was like, fuck me, it's Perlo. <laughs> and then I was trying to explain to him that, you know, uh, I wasn't a muggle. I was also a wizard. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? and uh, apologies, and I should know better. And of course, Perlo doesn't really speak English. So he's just looking at this, this fucking idiot who's screaming his name. But I got a photo with him. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it it's... It's, a, it's honestly, particularly at the moment with gigs being, you know, perilous and are we going to go into another lockdown and who knows? And will gigs ever come back to how they were before? And will the world be the same? You sort of realise just how lucky you are if you can rock up to a car park or a theatre or a comedy club or a field and people will be there waiting for you. It's amazing. So that sort of side of fame is the greatest because they trust you and they'll let you uh, try out new material and then your job as the famous comedian is just to always ensure that you have new ideas for them I think yeah you know? and if you love coming up with the new ideas and you love performing them to people you'll be fine but I think if you're kind of comedy if you want to be a celebrity comedy is like the worst way just be it just I'm not talking to you but I'm talking to <laughs> Yeah, TV presenting is so much easier because somebody writes the words for you and you just whack on a suit and, you know, yeah. say what they told you to say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But comedy, it's like you've got to write a new fucking novel every year. But if you like writing novels, it's the best. Yeah. How much do you think that, uh, because there's that Jerry Seinfeld quote where it's like he says his fame gives him like five minutes on stage or something. And yeah. then after that, if he's shit, it does nothing. Yeah. How much do you think your notoriety helps you when people recognize you so if you were if you were if you were shit for whatever reason yeah how much would your name recognition help you carry through essentially what's interesting particularly when there's always that excitement that frisson um amongst the british crowd of when it's somebody famous and the new material isn't going great mm. because you can see them going this is the, that ultimately that's the story they want they don't, you know, they, they don't really want to go, yeah, it was really funny. Yeah, it was all new, you know, yeah, for, 
But if you kind of go, oh, I'll tell you what, halfway through, he had a bit of a breakdown, started writing help me in his own shit. That's the, <laughs> that's the story that we want in it. But I think you just got to have that third eye open and just acknowledge when things are shit. So as long as you can be funny about not being funny, you'll yeah. always be, you'll always be funny. Do you see what I mean? And it's kind of, I did for the for this tour which started in 2019, I did like two months at Top Secret Comedy, and um, where I'd go there from Monday to Wednesday and do two shows a night, just and just trying out. So I was literally just reading from notes and whatnot, and some of those gigs were brutal, but it eventually became a thing. But that's, that's the only way to do it. But that excitement when you get a little bit becoming something is the best. And that's kind of enough to get you through. There's a really amazing um, Seinfeld um, interview with a guy called Tim Ferriss, where he's talking about that, that process of being kind to yourself when you write, whether you write uh, you know, literally on, on paper or a computer or when you kind of think of stuff you're going to say on stage it's almost like indulge that part of you as much as you can particularly during lockdown if you're a comic what else are you going to do you just spend two hours just writing out these thoughts and make yourself laugh if you can uh, and be super kind and then that moment when you perform to an audience you just have to you have to take on board their raw data which is saying this is not good enough that's funny a bit more of that and then you sort of tweak it so it's yeah it's kind of but you what to go back to your initial question you're right it gives you a massive advantage because um they trust you but then also something that's super exciting is that you can be anyone you want to be so if you want to be if you want to be filthy if you want to be cerebral if you want to be a mime act if you want to do ventriloquism whatever you, you you get to do whatever you want and there's quite liberating about that do you know what i mean yeah 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 that makes sense that's really interesting well because because it's sort of like what you currently do in stand-up you might not do in a year's time but it's yeah. almost like if you were famous let's say it would be it would be very hard for me to suddenly go deadpan if i wanted yeah. to do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. people would be like, "What's happened? Is, is yeah. someone, around, someone around him died?" <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, yeah. you know, where, like, uh, I think there's something sort of fascinating about the 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 gestation period of a comic that you can kind of go from, uh, and it's a really important period, and it's sort of it's one of the hardest things really in in stand up because you have all your mates going, "When are you going to make it? When are you going to make it?" And you're like, "Yeah." I'm, I am literally trying to make it and yeah. make it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it yeah. isn't about kind of fame. It's like, I'm trying to figure out who I am, how I can convince people and how I can get myself across. And the only way to do that is through gigs really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, that's really interesting. Firstly, I think I would have been amazed in my match. Uh, <laughs> like just absolutely brilliant. Just proper filthy mime. Just an hour of really dirty mime. But secondly, uh, the the best example, probably the, the most famous example of someone changing who they are was Richard Pryor, who started as this suited and booted, you know, family friendly, the new Bill Cosby. <laughs> and then he had a breakdown on stage, disappeared to Barclay for however long it was, six months, yeah. and then came back as a totally different, well, not a... I suppose it wasn't a totally different comedian. That's the thing, is it? He was still doing 
but he's still like, Richard Pryor doing jokes. Yeah, but it's very similar to it's exactly that. But all his building blocks had been so he knew how to be funny, but he just completely wanted to change his subject matter. It's exactly the same as like George Carlin, exactly the same as uh, like Louis C.K. Like the uh, Louis C.K.'s early stuff is is all kind of like one-liners and sort of absurdism. And then he kind of lent into the whole kind of, you know, uh, schlub kind of kind of dad, you know. I wonder if John Mulaney will come back with a different show after the experience that he's been having. I wonder if he'll come back with a different persona. That's really well, interesting. That's a very interesting point, eh? Because he's, he's very much a persona, isn't he? So yeah. it's kind of like, yeah... And it's quite sort of fourth wall and arm's length, and it's all about kind of small stuff. But he's fundamentally funny, so I would imagine, you know, he'll be able to make it kind of humorous. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Is I remember having a conversation with Tim Minchin about this, where I was talking about like girls self harming in my in my sort of last Netflix special, and um, I was like, I just because I, I I found out this stat that one in four girls self harmed age 16 to 24 and I just couldn't get it on my head I just kept and it eventually sort of found its way on stage and it's and I kind of made it funny as a bit you know obviously not funny at the expense of but sort of trying to figure out why because I was so well trained in trying to be funny do you see what I mean so it's kind of and and Tim was sort of pointing out it's that thing of we're so well trained after a while when you're boring, you your brain suddenly kicks in and goes, Oh, better think of a joke now. Better <laughs> pay attention. Do you know what I mean? And there's nothing quite like an audience to make you funny. Um, and I would imagine that's what John Mullaney will do. He'll go on stage and he'll talk about, you know, that, and then he'll feel that kind of tension in the room and he'll acknowledge it with a joke. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of the, the only way to do it really. I think. Um, Next question. A question for Russ, but I'm going to ask Ricky first, actually, because I'm interested in Ricky's answer to this, which is, um, so this is from Matt Reese. Um, How many moments have you seriously considered giving up stand-up because you've had enough? Like, Ricky, (laughs) I know you've only done like 25, 30 gigs now, but was there ever a moment, especially in some of those first ones, where you were just like, eh, done it, not for me, had Mm. enough? Or have you not had that yet? Interesting. Uh, there have been some moments when I've been like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, wh- wh- why? Like, there- there's never been a point when I've been like, I want to quit. But there have been moments when I've been like, maybe I should take this less seriously. Because I'll go to a gig and there'll be, you know, there'll be no one there except comedians, for example. Or, um, but I think for me, just because I think just because of the obsessive personality that I have, when I do bad at something, it makes me want to do it even more. So, like, after my first ever gig, I bombed like nothing ever before. And that, since then, that is the constant thing that I'm thinking about, like trying to not do that again. So, every gig that I go to, I'm kind of thinking that will happen. And how do I make that not happen? So I think mm. I don't know what could make me stop unless it was just like a ridiculous obstacle. But yeah, bombing is definitely not it. Are you the same, Ross? Like I'm like I, I'm trying to think. I don't think there's any moment. I can't think of any moment for us, especially where me and you ever had the conversation of 
I've had enough. We've had conversations where it's like, oh, fuck me, it's difficult at the moment. Or this Edinburgh Festival was hard work. Or, oh, shit, getting those gigs or doing that. Yeah. I don't, I've never, in 23 years, I've never, I don't, I genuinely, when I read this question, I was like, shit, should I have thought like that <laughs> at, one, at one point in 23 years? Yeah. Like, is it unnatural to have never thought anything other than, I oh, just can't wait for my next gig? Yeah, but it's also that thing of, yeah, like, it's funny, isn't it? Those, those deaths, what I always find really interesting, I find it, there's people I, you know, hugely admiring comedy. So people like, you know, sort of Chappelle and Burr and Michelle Wolf, And they're always, they always talk about bombing with such like fondness and like, you just got to go through it. I really don't have that. Like when I, when I do badly, it fucking hurts, man. Mm. And it, and I feel such a shame and like a loss of, you know, any esteem and just like, this deep, deep misery, but that's what fuels me so that it doesn't happen. So exactly the same as you, Ricky, it's that thing of going, Oh God, I feel terrible. I don't ever want that to happen again. Mm. Um, But I also know how great I can feel when a gig is amazing. So you have to kind of chase that, Mm. which is, and the problem with that is it's, that is a wildly unhealthy way to live. (laughs) Yeah. And there will, interestingly, there will have to come a moment when you you walk away from the casino, not you, the royal you, we, because it is it's you know literally having your happiness tied up into how strangers feel about you is mm. not a it's not a sustainable <laughs> way of ensuring happiness. Yeah. So it's kind of, but I don't know else that makes makes you happier than doing yeah. stand up. Stand, standing in front of people, being funny, it's the best. It's the, it's the greatest. So it's kind of, it's like this amazing drug. You know what I mean? Mm. And um, you know, occasionally, you you sort of think, oh, is there another thing? But I would have to just quit completely and then just become like a, a football coach or something like that. But that's the only way I could do it. I don't think I could do like radio or anything like that or anything. I would just have to go completely sideways and just you know. I don't think I could ever quit. Like I genuinely, like lockdown was so difficult for me just not being able to do it. Like I think even if I discovered I was, even if I became really shit, I think I'd have to just run a weekly or monthly gig in Bristol and just MC it. Like I would just have to keep doing it. Just the mere concept of not doing it. It's just so weird to me. Well, what? But that was the fascinating thing during lockdown. The very first lockdown that was like really brutal when you're like, is this ever going to change? And then I wrote so much and I completely changed. I literally went through all my old iPhone notes and I was like, right. And I set myself like comedy homework. Um, so it was nothing that was tied into the kind of pandemic. So I could take myself out of like, oh, I saw this sign in Germany. I'll write about that or whatever. And um you realize that when you were at, when you came out of the lockdown and you performed the jokes and the observations that you'd thought during the lockdown, it was this sort of like lightning bolt moment where you go, I'm not mad. I knew I wasn't fucking mad. And, and the laughter is a sort of, it's a big tick because of all those crazy thoughts you had. Like, and, and people laugh and go, yeah, fucking yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think that's that's what you miss because 
it is re- is tiring, you know, sort of just talking all this bollocks to your kind of partners because they're just like, what? And you're like, but why vegan burgers? Why are they always like edgy? Like, do you know what I mean? What? I, uh, just, just eat your fucking tea. <laughs> so, and it, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of that. And then that's the worst thing, isn't it? When you, you, you start like trying out material on people mm. and, um, and then you, they're looking at you and they're like, you've done this before. And you're like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rush, we're going straight into the next question. No fucking about with mm-hmm. this one. Are you ready? Good luck, mate. Um, so I basically, I put it on a group when I told people that I had a famous comic coming on, but I didn't tell them who it was. Uh, so this question is, um, you know Bill Cosby. Why on earth did you tell him to do what he did? Um, and in um, brackets, just in case, you are Bill Cosby. Why on earth did you do what you did? So, uh, I mean, have you met Bill uh, Cosby? I haven't met Bill Cosby. Um uh i was once introduced by jimmy carr at a big gig in montreal as the british equivalent of bill cosby (laughs) (laughs) and the audience didn't know know that jimmy was joking so i (laughs) wandered out all smiles they're like this guy's got some fucking nerve and i went (laughs) he's fucking around man um yeah uh, yeah, okay. never met Bill Cosby. Uh, um, yeah, never saw him. You did a little tour with John Cleese, didn't you? Like, sort yeah. of old school, another old school comedy legend. Yeah, that was, it was nuts. We did, um, yeah, we did, it was Montreal Just for Laughs in Sydney. And I saw one of the most bizarre things. I was in a hotel and I saw John Cleese. And I swear this is 100% true. I saw him go up and he didn't know that I could see him. I was just waiting on a sofa and he went up to the guy behind the desk with a really, he had a really small bin and he was complaining about the size of his dustbin in his, uh, in his bathroom. And he was just going, I mean, what am I supposed to put in that? It's utterly ridiculous. It's the smallest bin. I can't put anything in there, man. Like, and the guy behind the counter is like, going, ah, you're doing a fucking bezel for you, mate. Nice. And he had, no idea that he was being funny. It was an extraordinary moment. Do you know what I mean? Like, and everyone was like, look, come over, he's fucking doing the album. I, look at what, why are you people pointing at me and laughing? <laughs> Incredible moment of like, like, surely you know you're being funny, but I don't think you did. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, okay, more questions. We've got loads, so we're gonna, I'm gonna ask them really quickly. Um, when, if ever, do you decide a routine is done? How do you decide the, I don't know, I never know how to pronounce this word, can, canonical, canonical version of it? Basically, the version that's going to go on Netflix, the version that's going to go, because like, I've seen you do a lot of work in progress, and mm. then I saw you at the big Bristol City Ashton Gate gig last week, where that felt like the end of that process. But yeah. knowing what comedy is, I know the process is never ending, but then you do also have to put stuff out on Netflix. So how do you make that decision? Um, I think you just run the stuff as much as you can. And then when it feels like the language is, is crystallized as much as it can, then, uh, then you just have to kind of draw a line under it and kind of go, okay, I think that's, I think for a special, that's all as 
that's all exactly how I want it. I haven't quite been able to get that bit working, so I'll take that out or I'll move that there. Maybe I'll do that in another special. Do you know what I mean? But I've probably got for this Netflix special, I've got like two hours of stuff that I've got whittled down to like 58 minutes. So some of which will just become one-liners, some of which won't make it, and some of which will blend into other bits and you try and make it this kind of cohesive set, you know? Um, you are always you're always involved in the edit on your tv shows do you get involved in the edit on the on the specials as well yeah yeah they're amazing oh, yeah 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 totally so basically you present i think you have to present uh, your script in advance and they kind of yay or nay stuff um but you know they don't it's always like a legal thing you know you you know and it's always that is there another way you can say that without you know getting anyone sued <laughs> Um, Patton Oswalt's got an amazing routine about that, about whenever you've got like filth in your set on TV, they don't tell you not to do the filth. They just try and say, can you do this filth in a TV friendly way? And his line is, let me tell you this, clean filth is way more creepier than actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, does this, he does this routine where he kind of, he goes, where he has the line, I'm going to put hoo-ha, no, I'm going to put goof juice up your hoo-ha. And <laughs> it's a really good example, but that's basically what happens. And then, so you you shoot the special, you're then in the edit, you kind of make it how you want, and then you give it to Netflix. So that's how it works. Uh, Ricky, have you, got a, have you got a question? Because you've got the questions there as well. Uh, yeah, I've got one. Yeah, so when you say like... Um you kind of feel when it's done or whatever. Do mm. you ever watch the edit of one of your things and think, oh, I could have had that tag? Or are you really, oh, like, yeah. psychologically, I'm done? Well, no, you know, it's really interesting because I, like, I came up with the school that you, whenever you did the Comedy Network, which used to be the universities, you have to have a new new 20 minutes and then you have to have a new 40 minutes every mm. year. Um, and then when you went to Edinburgh, you had to have a new hour. And then the following year, you had to have a new hour. And if, so, you know, I wrote new hours from, uh, you know, the age of like 21 to 27 every year. And I'd been doing it, you know, sort of probably since 19, you know. And uh, as a consequence, you know, some of it, it, when I look back at it, I actually did that. Some of it just isn't, it, it, it isn't that good or it's not finished but there's always like half an hour that's really great. And I really wish I'd been one of those comics from a sort of a legacy point of view that had just done, you know, uh, you'd sort of maybe done three DVDs rather than six. Just see what I mean? Because but it's this, you kind of like, you're churning it out and churning it out and trying to do stuff and trying to fit it. But um, there's something interesting about a, a live show that it really kind of, sort of illuminate stuff you're not not aware of and you go oh god that's a bit mm, that's not quite finished or you know but yeah there's so there's like there's one dvd in particular which was my dingle dodie show which was a really good live show but then i did live at the apollo and took 20 great minutes out of that and then the dvd is doesn't have that 20 in because i felt like you weren't allowed to kind of replicate stuff and i'm yeah. like the only you know, that's so naive of me because, you know, clearly everyone has repeated stuff. But, but yeah, it, the, the, I don't know. 
it's it's a it, it's a funny old question that isn't it because when is it finished and sometimes you do look back at it and go ah it's not quite great but then I also look back at it and go geez there's a 24 year old kid trying his best do you know what I mean it's sort of that, yeah. it's it's a funny one really it's a th- I was reading something the other day about bands that most albums like even classic albums so many of them are recorded in like three days like so many of those times you hear those classic songs that's like the second time they ever did it you know they they wrote it they went into a studio they tried it out they were like oh yeah this is good and then we'll do it and then they spend the next 20 30 if you're the rolling stone 60 years of your life making those songs better and we don't get that chance to stand up because you know or often you don't get that chance well, yeah, well, no, I disagree, actually. I think we do get that chance because you can basically, you can be working up a bit, you know, that you can get, you could be working on something on a special from anywhere from like, I don't know, three months to two years. Do you know what I mean? And you, you have that kind of opportunity and your brain just runs it and runs it and runs it. So I think we But are- then when it's put on that special, oh, don't you can- then feel the pressure to not do it again? Oh yeah, you can't do it again. Yeah, it's nuts. And, that's the, and bands can do that. Yeah, well, but the great thing is, as comedians, we get to write the album with the audience for two years. So that, yeah, you know what I mean. That they, we basically, it's the equivalent of like going on stage and going, "It was all purple. No, it was all green. No, it was all yellow. It was yellow. Great, it'll be yellow from now on." You know what I mean? Whereas Chris Martin had to take a punt that yellow was the right color. Mm. Yeah. Um, we were going to speed through these questions and I'm a dick because I've got one that I want the answer to, uh, but I know this is not going to be a short one. It's just not going to be a short <laughs> answer question. Um, what right. would you change about the comedy industry if you could? Oh, Ricky's rubbing his hands with glee at that one. Did you want me to ask that one, Ricky? Yeah, I'm just excited about what the answer's going to be. <laughs> what would you change? If anything. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really think about the comedy industry. I just think mm. about kind of gigs and and routines. Do you know what I mean? I so think, that- yeah, I would, um, and this is sort of where this podcast started and all that, I would I would want to try and make it accessible for, for everyone. And although it feels like it's accessible for everyone, the mm. fact that so many open mic gigs starting pubs the fact that so many people that we would love to get in comedy don't go into pubs whether they are young muslim kids whether they are black kids who feel that pub culture isn't their thing like there's a lot of gatekeepers in comedy and actually there's a lot of women gatekeepers people of color gatekeepers but at that basic level getting people into doing open mic there's just a lot of spaces of the old white man. And it's difficult. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, as an old white man. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's kind of, I, yeah, I, I guess that was all, that was all we kind of knew. But presumably, you know, things like TikTok and uh, Instagram and kind of YouTube and whatnot have they they and podcasts that it almost feels that the podcasts are the real like punk that that 
that it, it feels like sort of comedic entertainment is in real rude health. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, 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 from a punk point of view, in that people who don't have TV shows can sell arenas out based off of their talent. But that's a, but it's a really interesting point, isn't it? That you kind of if if you say like you are you're a young Muslim and you don't want to go into a pub, you go, oh, well, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing I hadn't thought of. So I guess conversations like that take place, are taking place, have taken place. And there's more comedy in different spaces, one would presume. Do you know what I mean? And where you can kind of perform. Possibly, Ricky, would you agree? Possibly not as many yet? Yeah. Still pubs, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, it is just it is just still pubs or variations on pubs. But I guess it's like, for me, I'd say... Uh, the thing I would change about the comedy industry, like kind of vaguely, would be like, and it's kind of there now, but I would say more people willing to take a risk on newer people. Because now it's kind of like, there's this, there's a strange kind of gap, because it, especially, particularly in London, for like newer acts and stuff like that, the shows that you have are not really like, good quality or like you don't get that many people or it's not a good place to like really test what you've got and get better and stuff like that so it's like but then the only way to get to the gigs that are good and that can you can actually like have an audience and stuff like that is by doing those nights so there's this kind of weird situation you're in where you're trying to get better but you don't have the opportunity to kind of make mistakes in front of a, or a, a like a full packed room so it's kind mm. of like you have to get better without being in front of that audience before someone will let you be in front of that audience because mm. yeah because for me i for me i got lucky that i that you let you gave me that five minutes at Lakota because that changed my like my comic ability completely because that was the first real gig where I was like ah this is stand up because before yeah. that before that like obviously stand up can happen anywhere and if it's in a when it's in a pub or it's in a theater whatever but mm. it's like there's there's such a difference in the timing and how people receive jokes in front of that kind of audience where people are like yeah, we are here to watch comedy. We mm. haven't just been pulled from the front room of a pub. Mm. So it's, it, that's the kind of thing that I wish that we could really like build in where you can have nights where it's like new acts, headliners, middle. Yeah. Do you know, more, that, more. That's, it's really interesting that because that existed when I first started, right? So there used to be a club in Bath called the Fez in a nightclub back to nightclubs and pubs, but, <laughs> but they had an open spot on um, every, every Tuesday. And as an open spot, it was a, it was a, what would you say it was all the 200 seater probably? Lee. Yeah. Yeah. I was, cause so, they did big shows as well. So 200 people. Right. So I managed to do gigs with Ed Byrne, who was a massive star mm. still is Johnny Vegas um, we did gigs with Phil K and it was exactly that same process. It's really interesting. You've reminded me because you suddenly go, oh, it's, it's pretty easy performing in front of 200 people that have paid money and, <laughs> and, and they're here for a laugh, you know, but yeah, that's really interesting. But, but the fact that you would have an open spot on was great in the, in the overall night because it was always like, right, uh, here's compare, here's your first act. 
is is the open spot. Could be great, could be shit, doesn't matter. But it was part of the vibe. And and now here's your headliner. And that doesn't yeah. really exist. It doesn't exist anymore, that. I do you remember when we used to do them at the weekend as well? Yeah, maybe. Like, do- but like someone like Jeff Whiting is phenomenal in this, that Jeff always has open spots. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's, but you're right. It's kind of, yeah, it's a really, it's a really good point. I try and do that with Breaking Bread, which is the new gig yeah. on a Tuesday in Bristol where 150 seats are sold out, good acts on. Yeah. Um, I know the type of audience we're going to get. And so I do, uh, I have a, a paid first act and then I will have like a proper open spot as mm. well. Mm. Um, partly because I, because I remember it, you know, I remember, I remember what that was like to, like you said, you, you do new material nights, you do new app nights, but God, you, you learn so much, not just from performing, you learn so much from being in a, um, in a dressing room with, I think I remember yeah. my first proper one was like Marcus Brigstock in Cardiff, Marcus Brigstock and I think Lucy Porter was there as well. Like, mm. um, you learn so much from just being around experienced comics. Yeah, but and it, but but and then and then the cool thing is that like the shitty rooms you're describing, Ricky, you'll always need those rooms because you just yeah. got you got to swim through that shit because <laughs> because when there is an opportunity to do those kind of bigger rooms, you you suddenly realise, because I, I, I would put it to you, the reason you did so well with me um, at the gig in Lakota was because you'd never done a gig like that, that you were primed in a really tough world. And I wonder whether you'd have been as good if you'd have just wandered on. So unfortunately, sometimes you need those kind of tough rooms, but you you do also need those little moments where you can just you can just almost lift your head out the water and go, no, this is it. This is where I want to get yeah. to. Do you know what I mean? That you that, that it's it's really important because otherwise it's like if you're doing nothing but crap rooms for two years, it's very difficult because this is so far removed from the comedy specials that we all watch or we all listen to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, but then having said that, there's that fascinating comedy special where Richard Pryor is performing in front of a, um, <laughs> a like a menu and he's yeah. doing, he's, and he's clearly just working through stuff and he's doing fine. But 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 and that would go on to make up a lot of the material, you know, that he became famous for. So so do you know what I mean? It's sort of that weird. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's kind of just do do any gig when you start out, or, or not yeah. even when you start out. That's been the great thing about the pandemic for me. It's been a real like, it's like being an open spot again. I've done so many kind of gash rooms on 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 the basis where you look at them, and you go, oh, this isn't going to work. But it's a real, t- like, if it, if it works there, it's like, you know, it's really going to work when you're kind of back in front of full capacity or you're back at the Lakota, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's a question that um, um, Alex Kitson from Bristol, the other Kitson, is not a, uh, a pseudonym. Uh, but that a, will, um, it's, a, it's a Kitson. We've got a question uh, <laughs> Although, it is fun because in Bristol people do call him Kitson and that's really yeah. it's really fun oh yeah Kitson's coming on what what are you talking about um what decisions and choices did you consciously make earlier in your career that others stroke peers didn't that got to to where you are now and mm-hmm. the, the reason I wanted to ask this I think Ricky was interested in this 
because we thought it was a great question. I'm interested in this because I was with you when you were making those decisions. <laughs> and there's one in my head that I'll, I'll tell you, I think you made that decision. But maybe you tell me first. What do you want me to do? Shall I tell you mine first that I thought you made? Yeah. There was a bit really early in BBC Three when yeah. Yeah, you, got the cast, you got the casting to be like a presenter on BBC Three mm-hmm. and you turned it down because you wanted to keep doing stand-up. Yeah, it, it basically was, it was called Destination Midnight and it was basically like T4 in the evening. And I think Rufus Hound did it and a few others. Um, and it was a lot of money, but it would have been doing it three times a week. And I remember looking at one of the dates that they were put forward was for like a Tuesday. And I was like, but I've got the Cardiff network on a Tuesday. Um, and, but yeah, but I just, I just didn't want to be a, a TV presenter. And it was just, it was kind of easy really that you just kind of were like, I don't really want to do that. Do you know what I mean? I want to be, want to be a standup and I really, I really like doing this. So it, it just didn't feel like it was going to help me. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it to, furthermore it would have hindered me. So that, that was a big thing. I've turned down like a lot of TV presenting and, you know, the only stuff I've ever done on TV is stand-up or been, you know, a comic on a panel show. I've never done kind of straight presenting other than I hosted backstage at the Brits once and realised I wasn't very good at it and um, didn't want to do it. Um, Which, I've got to say, absolutely fucked me off because that goodie bag you got from them was fucking amazing. Was we had that in there was some good stuff in that bag. Well what well what's funny about that goodie bag is that basically do you remember I because I took it home <laughs> and um they gave you a Nintendo Wii and I literally <laughs> I couldn't open the Nintendo Wii because I was too disgusted with myself that I'd sort of done this TV show. Um and I and then after about a year I was out of bollocks to it. I opened it and it became apparent my brother had been sneaking out and playing with it because all the characters had <laughs> all like because I was initially playing it again. Geez, this guy's called Fat Dick. Full on avatar for kids. Like that. And then, hang on, this is called Duncan's a cunt. I think <laughs> um yeah. that was the big thing, really. And then it's sort of turning down like, you know, um, you know, head and shoulders adverts and whatnot and all this kind of malarkey. Mm. Um, you know, so it's sort of turning down easy money in favour of of kind of, you know, what you love. Which is not to say, but it's also, it's because there's loads of people that are really good at TV presenting and I'm just not one of them. I'm really good at kind of writing my jokes and performing my jokes and, you know, and writing with other people and creating the script but I, I wouldn't be able to just be given a script and say, just say this. I don't have those skills. I, I need mm. to know why and, I, and I, I need to make my own decision. I couldn't be just handed it in a rehearsal and, you know, I'm just not a good enough performer, you know? Mm. You went to, you went to London quite early and then came back. So you lived in London for a bit and came back. Was that another decision that you thought, oh, actually, no, it's going to be better for my comedy to stay in Bristol. I just couldn't afford the rent, is the truth. Like, it was, I remember I, I was really lucky and I got um, I got a support slot with on the comedy net, network and I got a, 
um, support slot with the the aforementioned kits and which were incredible. Um, but I just wasn't. My rent was I think my rent was like six hundred. No, it was five hundred quid a month, and it was just I was getting to the end of the month just like on my ass. Do you know what I mean? So just moving back to Bristol, the rent was cheaper and um, and I could still do those gigs and then travel into London. So it was kind of purely kind of economic, really. And then the funny thing is I was barely in Bristol because I was gigging everywhere. But mm. it was just that thing of like the rent in London is so hard if, to, to try and be a like, you know, sort of an opening act where you, you know, you were earning, you know, you'd sometimes, you know, like 75 quid. There was a gig in Leeds called The Ark. You get 75 quid for that. And I really wanted to do the gig. But I never wanted to be, nor was I ever one of those comics who was like, I'm not doing it for 75. I would do it for 75. And, you know, I got a diesel car because I figured out diesel was a lot less uh, pricey than petrol. Sorry, Greta. But, um, <laughs> um, I, but do you know what I mean? I figured out, like, and I found this, Remember that website we used to go on over that had cheap hotels? Late rooms. Yes. Laterooms.com. So basically like the hotel industry would give away like half decent hotels for like like um you know 20 quid at the end of the night if they couldn't fill them. So I was a real kind of hustler because I was just fucking skint. Um but um yeah, that was it. When you were just starting out, there was there ever a gig that you thought, nah, that's too far away. I can't be doing that. No. Well, but I think also because we we started out in the West Country and there was a club in Plymouth um, called Club Fandango that was on a Thursday night. And I used to travel there. It's a six hour round trip uh, from my mum and dad's um, to go to this club night in Plymouth where you do an open spot for five minutes. And I, I remember driving there terrified and driving back elated i couldn't quite believe i've been lucky enough to do five minutes i just had you know and and i mean what is interesting there is clearly that speaks of you know somebody that was um, misusing or correctly using his student loan but that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what i did i was just i i basically was like right cool you know and i i don't think i ever played club fandango for money but i think i did it about five times and then me and olva went down together a couple of times and you know then you i sort of figured out like me and will hodgson used to do a lot of gigs together that somebody would offer me a gig and i'd say hey can i bring my friend along he's an open spot he's really great um and then we could split the petrol and all these kind of things you know so you know it it was yeah like Probably with Olve, didn't we, mate? We probably did. I reckon I did like 200, 250 gigs a year. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was properly. Yeah, I was just. I'm, oh, yeah. I mean, we were. I don't know whether we were probably either really good or really bad influences on each other, <laughs> just in terms of where to go, what to do. Um, mm. I don't think there was, there, it wasn't even a competition thing of, you know, let's try and get who could get the most gigs. It was literally just like, this is happening. Fuck it. I'm on my way. Like just yeah. absolutely just the ridiculousness of, of loving it, you know, of just absolutely. Yeah. And I was just, as soon as you said club, I found anger then I was like, oh, I'd like to play that room again, because I imagine now you, that room, the size of it, if it's exactly like it was when it, we were there, yeah. I imagine that you, that just goes off now. Right. I imagine if that gig still exists. 
Yeah. Fuck me, you could just tear it in your asshole. Andy, wasn't it? Do you remember Andy? <laughs> Andy Fandango, yeah. Um, he was amazing. And, and your gig and Jeff's gig in Bath in the Porter. Incredible. Like that Incredible. room, holy shit. You go on there and you have a good one. Like you you feel like you are you feel like you are just shouting out fireworks. Like it properly <laughs> is just mm. boom, boom, boom. But it's interesting what Ricky spoke about that the comedy cavern or the fairs, they felt like the professional rooms. And we'd mm. be in those, you might get, you might step into a professional room once or twice a week. And then the rest of the time you were in like gigs that we ran that, that you know, were pretty decent, but they weren't professional, were they all? But they were, you know, they were quite nice. Mm. And it was, so that was it really. It was just, but there was never really a show that, that I've kind of turned down just, be, and, and even still now, I just still find myself going, yeah, I'll do it because what, particularly at the minute with with COVID, it's kind of like, you know, it, I think you know it clearly makes a lot more sense financially to kind of reschedule gigs and do them, you know, you know, as full capacity next year. But it's like, well, you know, just do two in a night. Do you know what I mean? If you can, and then half <laughs> full, and like, you know, or do it in a football. If you're lucky enough that you can do it in a football stadium, do that. You know, you're not mm-hmm. going to make. You're not going to make as much money, but ultimately it's about doing gigs, isn't it? I think, particularly in the minute, if this fucking time we're living through has taught us anything, is that comedians really miss doing stand-up, uh, <laughs> possibly more than the audiences miss us. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah. So, uh, like, you know, I did that gig for Olve uh, that, you know, ended up in the fucking papers. Um, <laughs> But that is not a gig I would have done two years ago if Mark had sort of said, and, you know, I shouldn't have done it as it turns out. But <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of that interesting thing that that I was like, yeah, cool, sweet, I'll do whatever. And I've done loads of loads of gigs throughout this pandemic um, because ultimately that feeling, whether you're an open spot or a, a new act or um, it's your first Edinburgh or your Billy Connolly, that moment where you go, there's something in that that is that is sacred it's re- it really is it's there's something really special about that and i think if that goes away you're in trouble and if you have this thing in your head that goes i'm not going to that gig for that amount of money ahead of fucking hell i can do that thing about goats for example <laughs> that that that's going to be a problem and and maybe this isn't the uh this isn't the place for you do you know what i mean the royal you not you, Ricky. Mm. <laughs> or, or Jasper Williamson, as you appear yeah. to be called on here. Yeah, who's, Jasper, yeah. who's Jasper Williamson? He's my friend who can afford to have Zoom Premium by his name. Oh, nice. No, yeah. very nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fucking incredible name, though. Jasper yeah. Williamson. Yeah. You'll yeah. be honoured to hear you say that. And I've met him, and he is very much a Jasper Williamson as well. <laughs> very much. Um. Uh, Ricky, I reckon we got just just over ten minutes, or just less than ten minutes. So, I'll do a question, then you do a question. How about yeah. that? And then we'll bugger off. Yeah, let's um, do it. So, Morgan Reese uh, has got these very, very Morgan questions. These. What's your most common fix to a joke that previously wasn't working? So, you do something that isn't quite right. Is there a fix is there a, a standard fix for it it's always to 
cut it short if do you know what I mean and and sort of just try and cut it back to what does work and then try and rebuild it again that's normally it. I remember having a huge bit about Adele that that I wrote in the first lockdown that I thought was going to be great there's about three pages of it and then it turns out it was a one-liner do you know what I mean that was that was pretty good but then even that wasn't good enough to make it into the special so for me that's always my fix is just like Ah, no, there's too much. No, don't need that. No, don't need that. It's kind of about cutting stuff or, and then trying to rebuild it again. Yeah. And, and yeah, I always think of material. And it's always about the words. I think it's, it's so the more you get into it, the more you think you go, okay, what is the perfect word? What is the perfect sort of metaphor? Is there a better way of saying that rather than, do you know what I mean? Oh, like, you know, I, I went into this shop you know, or you know, I remember I've got a bit specifically where I got caught um, washing my hands um, by a bloke in Denmark. And it's funnier to say the look on his face as he emerged from a cubicle than it is. Oh, and this bloke seen me. Do you know what I mean? There's this kind of the look on his face as he emerged. It creates its mm. own kind of sort of atmosphere. Like Peter Kay's incredible at that. I remember there was a, a line that he had uh, that was so deft. It's on a one of his specials where they're in Vegas and this guy, this guy gets on and goes, "Hey, welcome to Vegas. How are you? This is going to be our first bus trip. Has anybody got any questions?" And this bloke went, "You wear an eyeliner. <laughs> you're instantly on that bus." Do, do, do you know what I mean? It, it, you see all the kind of like English people that are all kind of confused. And finding it all a bit like, bah, da, bah, bah. but with that one line, somehow you're there, you know, mm. it's kind of, so I wonder if, if that's the, the fix for me, it's always like, right, let's disassemble and then reassemble with better words. What were you going to say? Yeah. Oh, no, I just think, I think you're totally right. And because it's assemble and disassemble, I often imagine material as being like an accordion. And yeah. so when I'm going into a bit for the very first time, because I'm waffly and rambly, that bit is really long and then I want to make it shorter and shorter and shorter to make it tighter. But then when I do it, it's comparing. Sometimes it might be really short, like literally 20 seconds worth, three lines worth, because I want to do it nice and quick for a bit of comparing. But then when I'm doing it as a set or when I was doing Edinburgh shows, I want to take it back out again. And when you're recording it in and out, you, you will find like, the perfect length, size, position for that bit. Mm. It's exactly what Russell said. I, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying this because um, we've spoken about it, but Tom Crane, who now does more writing than stand-up, um, I remember we had a journey once and he, and he asked me what I thought of his stand-up. I said, I, I really like it. I think you're really funny, but fuck me, you love your words, don't you? You just <laughs> love all of your words. You love every single one of them. Because sometimes the joy of comedy is is the quick, and so well, if no, you can find mean, totally. It's not. It's not always about being floral. It's sometimes, you know, it is it's finding all, the right one. Totally, and it's and it's about catching your rhythm and and catching your authenticity and the way you tell a story, rather than the way you would try and write to convince people that you're clever. It's not about being clever. It's about being funny, although you know. But but and and funny is explosive and vital, and you can be super funny by being super clever. But sometimes you can, you know, it's 
you just get just the right word and it's whatever i don't know it's 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 how you stay in that kind of that sort of state of you whatever you are how are you funny with your friends and and try and replicate that rather than then trying to sort of create this whole kind of but then that's you know that's my i'm not really a persona kind of guy i find it all a bit like you know kind of strange you know i'm um, and Mark's the same. He's just like all the comics that I like are pretty much themselves on and off stage. Mm. Yes. You know what I mean? That they would, you know, Richard Pryor was Richard Pryor. He wasn't, you know, playing the character of Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question, Masindo. Okay. So this question is from the same Morgan Reese. It's kind of related to what we're saying. So I'd say a lot of people probably describe your humor as relatable, I guess. So, like, I guess it's quite a good question for you. Do you feel that you have to be relatable at all, or is it just enough to be funny? First comes best. Completely enough to be funny. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's like, I am an extension of who I am on stage. So, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of, I I I really like people liking me, and I like making people laugh. That's what I'm like around my friends. You know, uh, and as Olver can attest, I'm a fucking nuisance, but I'm I'm kind of gobby. I've always been gobby and I've always been kind of quick. And that's what I'm like. And I'm trying to. So that's just I, I was raised through, you know, football change rooms. So, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? It was just kind of that thing of that. And, and um, uh, you know. You and your brother, like me and, me and Daniel, but and your family, and yeah, yeah, family is just tick tap. So we're not really storytellers. We're like and everyone interrupts and sort of you know it's and sort of builds on each other's stories. So that's who I am. But yeah, I'm you know trying to think of like who isn't who isn't relatable but fucking hilarious. Um, well, someone like Mitch Hedberg, you know, Mitch Hedberg. You don't. No one knows anyone like Mitch Hedberg in their life. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? But he's just this brilliant guy that comes along and tells these kind of beautiful, mad, imaginative jokes and then kind of wanders off. No, it's it's it, whatever you want. That's the amazing thing about stand-up. Whatever you want to do, you can do. And mm. you don't have to you don't have to be everybody's friend. You you, you know, or but if you want to be, you can. Or you can be a you can be a fucking arsehole, you can be a cunt, you can be provocative, you can be, you know. You can be whatever you want, but what I would say is that that it's slightly. If you're going to be provocative, then it's slightly harder initially to be to do well because people are going to be upset. But like somebody like Frankie Boyle, you know, just a fucking genius, you know, and he's not, he's not, you know, he's not everyone's friend. But you know, (laughs) but then, but I guess his dark thoughts are relatable. So it's, yeah, I, I think you can just be whatever you want, man. You know what I mean? It's kind of... Um, any questions from you, Ricky, before we let Russell go and probably go back in the sun, I imagine? <laughs> and I think that was all the questions from me. Just like, thanks a lot, Russell, for doing this. Pleasure, man. Nice to see you again. Um, what's, um, what's on the horizon? Are you gigging much at the minute? Yeah, yeah. So I've got, uh, I'm actually doing one tonight. At, at Smoke and Mirrors in Bristol, I'm doing the gong show. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, then I've got a couple coming up. Then I'm going back to London to do the King Gong show at the comedy store. Nice. I just, I just love punishment. It's just so fun. 
No, I did. I've that. never done a gong show. I've I never did. done a gong show. Yeah, yeah, I did it. Um, I got, I was beaten by Ria Lena, um, in all right in two thousand and two, and uh, Johnny Vegas came up to me and offered me three gigs. It was one of the coolest nights of my fucking life. <laughs> Basically, I came second and felt like shit, and then suddenly Johnny Vegas rocks. I went, I like you. Do you want to do some gigs with me? And I was like, Yep. <laughs> Um, and then I went and did free gigs with him in Nottingham and they were tough gigs, believe you me, because Johnny yeah. was comparing and then we had to come on in between Johnny. <laughs> Imagine that as a fucking 22 year old. It was me and Will Smith and Lucy Porter as well. But yeah, man, fuck. Um, oh, enjoy. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Yeah. Tell nice. The, tell the story and tell it well. Yeah, um, thank you very much. But boss, I will speak to you. Uh, I'll speak to you soon. Who's the boss? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, do you know I'm what? Really sure. I think Russell Howard in this is the boss. I'm, not um, I'm a CEO. Um, please. <laughs> 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 can we wrap? Can we wrap this up? Because I, I got to meet Bezos. We're uh, we're doing around. <laughs> <two>. we're gonna... <laughs> I've got. I can um, get shit like about that because the people he went up with looks. They look like. Uh, members of my family and there's been lots of, <laughs> lots of photos doing the rounds why is Daniel sat down <laughs> um, Russ oh, I'll speak to you soon oh, yeah yeah um, nice to see you thank you yeah. oh captain Thanks, my captain well, hey, hey, fellas. oh captain my captain <laughs>